It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, with its own needs. Something in your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no sheets. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down, like fire in a fire. Mr. Chicken Southern Gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, you could do it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. A miraculous moment of morality <laughs> in an amoral world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 700 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a grand old man, and I got a brand new plan that's to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. What do you think of that? Right on. Right on, brother. Right on. All right. I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostest. And together, <laughs> we are the watchers on the wall, and we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. I feel like I'm falling apart. You poor thing. <laughs> we'll talk about I that. Have face pain. In a minute. Ay, ay, ay. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? Uh. With a perilous possum, well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to a darn thing we say. <laughs> or at least don't admit to listening to a darn thing we say. But if you do listen, you might just get a head start on keeping your family safe in disasters. So maybe you should. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Hey, do you have a nugget of knowledge in your noggin? Well, you know, we learn as much from you as you do from us. So connect with us. It's easy. And here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. Contact us anytime by email at drbonespodcast at AOL.com. You can find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. We also have a YouTube channel with lots and lots of videos. In fact, over a hundred. Wow. And that is Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. You can also see our video cast at AroundTheCabin.com. And we are rebroadcast on several channels. Yes. Including G-Man's 
Prepper Broadcasting Network. That's right. Also, the uh, Emergency Broadcasting, Broadcasting Network. That's, that's right. right. USA Emergency Broadcasting Network, uh, Shake and Wake Radio, Survival Central, all sorts of wonderful channels that we hope that you check out. Thank you guys so much for replaying. We really, really appreciate your support. That's right. Hey. Yes. In the news. You scared me. In the news. <laughs> yes. Is ISIS causing an epidemic of a deadly flesh-eating bug by dumping bodies in the street? Ew. Well, that's what the head of the Kurdish Red Crescent says. Now, the Red Crescent is the Muslim version of the Red Cross. Uh-huh. And the bug, the organism known as Leishmaniasis, is caused by a protozoan parasite. We've talked about parasites before. Ugh. And it's usually carried by flies that are only about a third of the size of a mosquito. Truly a noceum. And expert, oh, that's tiny. That's right. Yeah, it is an itty-bitty wow. noceum, basically. Uh-huh. And experts warned that increases in rotting flesh on the street have triggered a dramatic rise in this particular type of infection. That is disgusting. It is. About 16 months ago, they thought about 500 people in the area were affected by the disease, but now that has is believed to have soared to several thousand. Uh, of course, the World Health Organization, as you can imagine, monitors Syria's health system, and they say that it is in total collapse after five years of war. So this is a big issue. Now, leishmaniasis is an infection that causes, uh, mostly in its most common form, a skin issue. It, it causes open sores at the bite sites, Ugh. and these don't heal, really. They heal in a few months to a year and a half. That's wow. how long they last, leaving a very unpleasant-looking scar and there's a, a local version where it's just where you were bitten, and there's a diffuse version which causes widespread lesions that look sort of like leprosy. Oh, and with they, skin sores right, everywhere. Which just may not oh, heal. no. There's a version also called mucocutaneous, which means that it's in your mouth and in the uh, mucous membranes inside the vagina, for example, in the anal area. And then there is visceral leishmaniasis, which... Uh, is also known as Kayla Azar, or black fever. Uh-huh. That's the most serious form that affects your innards. And so this is something that can occur even a few months to a year after an infection, and it causes damage to the liver and the spleen and all sorts of things. It also affects your blood count as well, so it really gets you sick. Now, leishmaniasis is treatable with certain prescription antibiotics, but the only anti-protozoal antibiotic available for mass stockpiling is fishzole, otherwise known as metronidazole. And it's not certain if that one has any effect on leishmaniasis at all. That means that any dead bodies rotting in your vicinity in a survival setting uh-huh. should be carefully disposed of simply to prevent, even if it's just to prevent the multiplication of the flies uh-huh. that carry the leishmaniasis Parasite. Parasite, right. Interestingly enough, the Red Cross and the Red Crescent believe that in and of themselves, dead bodies don't cause epidemics in most cases because people don't generally touch them. Right. And when they do, it's usually with gloves and, and sometimes masks, things that you should have in your medical storage. Now, in Syria, however, the victims were killed by penetrating trauma, not infection. So I would agree that if the remains are handled in an ex- expeditious manner and with Good hygiene procedure, in other words, washing your hands afterwards right. after carrying the bodies, and probably the likelihood of, of an actual epidemic would be small, and it's sort of hard for me to figure out what's going on in Syria. Actually, not really, because we know 
that what's happening in Syria is because of these flies. So basically, there's rotting flesh. The flies are attracted to the rotting flesh that's on the street. And the flies themselves carry the parasite. Wow. The protozoan parasite. And then they fly off. And if there are people nearby, they'll infect them. Now, dead bodies, by the way, can cause problems with disease in, for, in certain circumstances, especially if they contaminate the drinking water. So you, they should be buried 200 feet away from your local water source. Is part of the problem that these are infected flies that are laying eggs in the dead bodies that are then hatching and forming more flies? Fly, exactly. That are egg, carrying the virus. Yes, so exactly. The, multi, the main that's thing. That's like the breeding ground. Right. So, so you want to like bury those. It's like standing water for exactly. mosquitoes. Right. Gotcha. That is absolutely a perfect ground. analogy okay. for that. And, gotcha. and basically, it means that you should be burying these bodies. Of course, those people. Uh, who die of infectious diseases like Ebola, they may have active organisms on them. Already. So, you know, so any contact with them could obviously cause outbreaks dangerous. to persist in a community right. and could be dangerous. Right. Uh, but in this particular case, it's not the dead bodies being infected so much as the flies being attracted to the dead bodies and causing uh, multiplication of that parasite that they carry. Now, if the person does actually do these people die of this parasite or is it just they call, transmitted? Can it's it... transmitted and it causes these lesions and uh, the the most common version is the skin one. So okay. you don't die from that, okay. but so you just are disfigured right. from okay, it. Gotcha. You are disfigured from it. All right. But um, the visceral one is the one that could be fatal and there have been some cases of that as okay. well. So that is a, a big issue. Oof. So let's see. So we have been in the midst of trying to put together... Our act for uh, the holidays and I was, I was wondering which yes, act, act. Yes, we have act, many acts. The act yes. of uh, the act of getting our act together. That's what we have to do. The act of fixing computers. The act of getting the kitchen right? put back together. We've had some computer issues. The act of decorating for Christmas. Right? Remember, if you remember, a few months ago we had issues with uh, black mold, but we are only now getting. Our cabinetry. I have a few, put on. right? And I only have a few cabinets. I don't uh-huh. even have the rest of the cabinets. I have a few bottom cabinets and a couple upper cabinets. They tried to deliver appliances today, but the dishwasher had scratches on it. I, I like. Yeah. <laughs> so we, but you know what? We are very I'm well prepared. It, I'm giving it a can do yeah. attitude, attitude every time something comes. Like this is gonna work. Well, we are very well prepared for a uh, power down situation. Oh, we haven't so been prepared. using a lot of kitchen appliances. No, nope. that's that's for We're sure. Good. It has been pretty pretty darn kooky. But um, in general, <laughs> I just want to say that you know, from the standpoint of getting our act together with regards to all of our content and our. We're getting our podcast together, and we're doing our video casts. And the one issue we haven't been able to do uh-huh. too much with is our store. As you know, out there we have uh, an entire line of medical kits that Amy has designed. Some really awesome kits. I think some of the best that that actually exist. Thank you. I think are, are kits that she's put together, and put we, a lot of time and effort into them. But what we haven't been able to do is really market these no. very well. So I just want to tell everybody out there that Amy has, believe it or not, uh, has put out uh, a Thank couple you. of different 
uh, deals that are available for you. She's got the the big one. I think is the, the free, free shipping. shipping. Right. Pretty much anything uh, that you have in your store automatically over fifty dollars. At over fifty dollars. Some of the things under fifty dollars are free shipping. Like our game. Yep. has automatic free, free shipping, shipping, and that's $49. So that's right. So get free shipping, and we've added the miniatures right. without adding another right. dime to it. So you now get miniatures in Classic addition miniatures to the, the game for and the game. Uh-huh. a backpack, and the Survival Medicine DVD comes with it also. Right. So it's a that's, nice package. That's a lot of stuff. So if you have a yeah. uh, older child, perhaps, or some some people that aren't preppers that you would like to sort of get involved by in a way that doesn't sound like a lecture, <laughs> then you could get together for a nice family game night with our game Doom and Bloom Survival. But in any case, not only do we have free shipping on the game and anything else in our store. If you every order over fifty dollars gets a free gift, a little goodie bag with some medical supplies. Yes. So everybody if gets you a say, little something. If you have to put into the coupon code free gift, no spaces between it, and you actually get a dollar off if you put the free gift. <laughs> and this code is only good until December thirty first. So if you put the word and I call it word because there's no spaces, free gift into your coupon. You get a dollar off, and depending on how much you spend, you will get a free gift. That's right. And it, oh, by the way, it automatically makes it free shipping again over $50. Right. So it guarantees it. Guaranteed. All right. So <laughs> anyhow, that we just want to let people know that because we actually have mentioned, I think, exactly once on all our social media. That's how busy we've been. Uh, <laughs> that was very sad. And then I had just very sad. Then I had my computer that I've had for six years go bad, and I could only recover back to October first, two thousand fourteen. So, folks, if you've got a computer, please regularly back up your files because you just never know. Yep. And don't count on some iCloud thing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Believe um. me, manually connect your hard drive and. Download it. Back right. it up. <laughs> you know, we, You're actually been pretty good about that. I Yeah, I really... You've gotten burned a few times. Well, because this is a very old computer that I'm using, and eventually it's oh, going and to... you've got manuscripts completely, on it, it's going which to explode, are very, and no. I've got... You know, <laughs> like catch fire oh, Absolutely or right. We did add some fire, new fire alarms, so <laughs> we'll be okay, honey. <laughs> That's right. Hey, you know we talk a lot about being a medical caregiver of last resort and survival scenarios and... You know, how to treat this illness or identify that infection. But we don't talk a lot about the basics. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about a part of what every physical exam should start with. And that is the vital signs. You know, when you're the medic, people arrive at sick call with complaints that you have to address, right? Now, to do that, you're going to have to be able to get information from them to help in your assessment. So that information is partly given as a result of the history, what they tell you what's going on with them and how it, you know, when when it all started and where the pain is and all that other stuff. But of course, you're going to have to do a physical ex- assessment. You have to put your hands gloved, hopefully, on them and be able to look for physical signs of illness, check out a wound in a systemic manner, you know, systematic manner, rather, um, Sometimes the problem's obvious in seconds, and other times you're going to have to examine the whole body to actually determine what's going on. Now, before an exam, I always want you to communicate to your patient in a calm manner who the heck you are, 
what you're going to be doing and why you're doing it. During the exam, always be very careful to avoid forcing people to move or perform an action that's beyond their capability. That's very, very important. Everything calm and rational. Absolutely. And also make sure that you understand their range of motion so that you're not asking them to do something that, that might hurt them or make them uncomfortable. You know, some people have issues with joints and muscles back problems. I know if somebody asked uh, your aunt before she passed away to touch her toes, uh, yeah, she, she wouldn't have been probably would have cracked her back. Or she was in her mid nineties. Well, yeah, I know right. that's what I'm saying. Just be aware of people's limitations, and also speak in a gentle manner. Do ask, you know, if they can perform it, and would they please do it? Be very kind and very gentle, and very aware that the person that you're dealing with is actually a human being, and not just someone who happens to walk by everyone deserves respect and and dignity that's absolutely right that is one of the basic tenets of being an effective medic now when you're taking a look at a at your person starting your exam i mean Mm -hmm. remember that humans are pretty much bilaterally symmetrical what i mean by that is if i drew a line (laughs) right vertically down the middle of you for the most part you're going to be about the same on one side than the other and so you should always take a look and make sure that that indeed is the case that there's no abnormalities on one side that looks different than the other in other words is there a a wasting of or is there a a weakness or a droop on one side of the face right right, exactly Or, or people weaker on one side than another uh, these are things that you can test for very, very simply as part of your exam. But let's talk a little bit about the basic information. Okay. Now, you want to know and you want to mark down whether the patient's in distress. Uh, we used to write down in medical school, patient in NAD, no apparent distress. Exactly. Okay. So that's one thing. Or, or are they clearly ill? Are they clearly in pain? And this is something that you can ascertain really just while the patient is telling you the reason for their visit. You can tell that pretty much just from the way the person's acting. And right, so and once, this is not a question. This is actually an observation exactly. of the person. Exactly, right. You don't say, hi, are you clearly ill? <laughs> well, are, well you, are you in distress? Are you, you in distress? You may ask these questions later, but yes, your, are you observation, in right, your observation is just what's going on. Exactly. So once you've heard the history of the, of the patient, given them a, a quick once over, just with your eyes, you can begin the physical portion of the exam just by checking the vital signs. And what are vital signs? I mean, you've, everybody's heard of them. What are they? They're a set of measurements that give an idea of the general condition of the patient. And vital signs include a number of things. Uh, the pulse rate, and this is taken by using two fingers to press on the neck to feel, let's say, the carotid artery. You can uh, also put it on what we call the radial artery and that's on the inside of your wrist basically by the base of the thumb it's exactly on, right so it's when i say the inside the underside i guess of the wrist yes the the back of the wrist facing um the palm the palm, palm side the, the, I think palm, that, the palm you know, side it's yes, hard that's, for us to break right. this down into yeah, what's the back terms? and what's the front right layman's terms right. okay okay so palm on, side. on the palm side right <laughs> Two fingers. We have press, fancy medical terminology, right. but there you go. Right. And press also, on the base of the thumb. Yes, I also want to mention, don't press too hard, especially if it's a child or an older person. Sometimes the pulse is kind of weak, um, and 
you could easily push too hard and you won't feel it. And you'll say, wow, you don't have a pulse. It's just that you're pushing too hard. So your pressure of your two fingers is important. You might be compressing the actual pulsation. So you might have to lighten up a little bit if you don't feel anything. Another thing that might muddle things up or give you an inaccurate pulse is taking your thumb and putting your thumb where the pulse should be because your thumb has its own pulse, pulse. <laughs> and you're probably feeling your own pulse and if that's the case so you that it so avoid wind up winding up counting your own pulse make sure you use your first and second fingers your your index and your middle finger to take a pulse is the usual way to do it. Exactly. There's a, a few alternative places. One's the top of the foot. Top of the foot and back of the knee. You, you'll have a pulse also. Um, you have a On the pu- side of the ankle. On the side of the ankle. You have a number of places. But basically, the, the neck, I think, and the wrist are the two Probably easiest, the easiest to get to. Exactly. Right. I would agree. Exactly. Now, normal pulse rate at rest is about 60 to 100 beats a minute. Um you can choose to feel the pulse for, let's say, 15 seconds and multiply the number by four. That's it. And you'll get beats per minute. Uh, if you take it for a full minute, that would be, of course, much more accurate. Uh, but It is. Let me just mention, every time you do increments and you multiply, you're less accurate. So, you know, there are some people that take it for six seconds and multiply it times ten. Probably not very accurate at that exactly, point. Exactly, yes. Okay, I'd so say 15 seconds would be the minimum. Minimum, yes. Preferably the 30-second or the sixty full 60 seconds is the most accurate. Now, you'll find that most people who are, let's say, agitated from having suffered an injury, let's say somebody brings you somebody who's suffered an injury, uh-huh. you're probably going to see a high pulse rate in somebody like that. Oh, yeah. Or somebody that has just done physical exertion, they might, they'll have a pulse rate of 100 or greater. We call that tachycardia tachycardia is the actual term You're for that use some terminology that's here. right just to <laughs> teach people a little terminology tachycardia now, now a low pulse rate is below 60 and we call that bradycardia and that might be seen in people with some heart problems uh, some uh, heart rhythm irregularities and it's also seen sometimes as a normal finding in people that are highly athletic have a very low pulse sometimes so these are things that you'll see with regards to the pulse rate. Now, the next thing you're going to be checking, you'll be checking the respiration rate. Uh, This is simply observing the patient breathing to give yourself a rate of how many times they breathe over the course of a minute. Now, you can do this just by watching them, or you can place your hands alternatively on their back to feel, uh, or on the top of their chest to feel the raising and lowering of the chest wall and so respiration rate is best evaluated for about an for an entire minute to get a really accurate reading the normal rate uh of respirations is about 12 to 18 breaths a minute and it's somewhat more for children the the younger you are the the faster you breathe apparently so now things that you should notice while the person's breathing, are, are, are they wheezing? Are they making gurgling sounds while they're inhaling or they're exhaling? And remember that a respiration rate over 20 a minute is usually a sign of a person in distress. And remember how I said that tachycardia means fast heart rate? Well, tachypnea, tachypnea or tachypnea <laughs> is 
a fast respir- respiratory I, rate. How I pronounce it. <laughs> there you go. And and the same thing. I've never heard this really used in an exam. But Brady Nippia, Brady Brady. You Nippia. got a really slow that respiration. <laughs> I don't think we. <laughs> right. We don't need to be naming it. Yeah, we right. need to be fixing it. But people have heard. <laughs> people have never heard of that. But people have heard of apnea, sleep apnea, for example. Right, they is no breathing. Yes. <laughs> apnea is no breathing. You definitely don't want to diagnose apnea that's, in a patient that's in front yeah, of you. Yeah. Why, sir, you have apnea. Yeah. Oh, I'm dead. <laughs> I see. Bad, bad <laughs> thing to diagnose. <laughs> All right. Um, next, you're going to be checking blood pressure. Blood pressure is a measure of the work that the heart has to do to pump blood throughout the body. And this is determined partially by how elastic the walls of the arteries are. The less elastic the walls of your arteries, the more pressure required to force blood through it, right? Now, your blood pressure is at its highest when the heart is in the midst of beating. As it beats, you have what we call the systolic pressure or the high pressure. When the heart is between beats, your heart, your blood pressure drops, and that's called the diastolic pressure. And so the systolic pressure and the diastolic pressure pressure are basically measured, and then they're sort of, uh, you, you say that they are X over X. So in other words, if your systolic pressure, the high pressure is 120, the low pressure is 80, you say it's 120 over oh, 80. Right. Everybody's heard about this, of course. And blood pressure is measured using a special instrument. It's called a sphygmo Figmo manometer boy. <laughs> and you know it's funny if um, you haven't been taught medical terminology and you say you see that word on a piece of paper, it's like what? <laughs> True that, man. This equipment is also called blood pressure cuffs, and they come in different sizes. If you have somebody with a very skinny arm, there's a small size. If someone's very heavy with big fat arms, then of course there's a large size. Most people. Are have normal size arms, and usually the blood pressure cuff has actually a little marker which tells you if the size is too big or too small. And it's very important to have the right size because otherwise you'll get an inaccurate reading. Now, to use the sphygmomanometer, you want to place the cuff around the upper arm. You fill it up with air using the attached bulb. Okay, you're going to place your stethoscope over an area that has a pulse, and you'll check that. Usually, uh, the pulse in the uh, crook of the arm is going to be in the center or a little bit to the inside. When I say the inside, I mean pointing towards the torso. So it's going to be right there, right at the crook of the arm, pointing towards the torso. Listen with a stethoscope. You'll probably be able to hear it. And that's what you're going to do. You're going to place your stethoscope over the area that has a pulse and then listen while looking at the gauge on the cuff apply pressure to the to the gauge with a bulb that it comes with and raise it to i would say about 180 or or up to maximum maybe of 200 no more than that and then release the bulb uh, the valve on the bulb just so enough so that it goes down about two points on the meter every second, let's say. And so it's going down continuously two or three points every second, and that way you can sort of gauge when the uh, blood pressure starts. The first sound is going to be, the, the first sound of the pulse 
returning is going to be your systolic pressure, the high pressure, and when it goes away completely, that's what we call the diastolic pressure. So that would be at, let's say, 120, uh, and then for the high, and then 80 for the low. That means that you first heard the heart, the pulse beating through your stethoscope at about 120, and when the gauge reached 120, and at 80 is when the, you heard the last sound. So that's, I think, a very good way to describe it. Of course, it's probably better to do it yourself. This is one of those things that you should practice doing if you don't have a blood pressure cuff. Um, make sure that you get one. A good stethoscope is also a reasonable thing to have. Both of these things are together. Now, of course, as long as you have power or the ability to put batteries in, there are versions that are automatic that you can have. Some of them are uh, wrist versions, and they also will give you accurate readings. But remember, you have to have batteries. So if you have a way to recharge those batteries in a survival setting, well, you could use that if you want. But between you and I, I think you should have just a regular blood pressure cuff and know how to use it. And I think it's better to do it that way than to count on uh, uh, having battery power, you know, years down the road if, if something really does happen. Now, you should be concerned if there are blood pressure numbers that are over, let's say, 140, uh, 145, 150 maximum uh, on the high side, on the systolic side, or 90 or above on the bottom on the bottom side on the diastolic side that's i think a big issue yeah you're going to want to take these blood pressures by the way uh in either a laying down or a sitting position Mo- you should always take it on the same arm usually people take it on the left arm and uh, i would never make the diagnosis of high blood pressure for example on someone on one reading exactly. i would i would check before the exam, maybe again after the exam, maybe a, maybe a little while later. Also, I you know I, I like three readings absolutely. that are abnormal before I say that. With a period of time pressure. in between, and also you want to make sure that again the patient is not currently in pain, that they're not having white coat syndrome. They're afraid of doctors or nurse practitioners or whomever is taking care of them. Some people get very anxious when they're in the presence of somebody who has medical knowledge, who will be evaluating them. It just makes them nervous. And so their blood pressure always goes up every time they're in the doctor's office, but then they get home or they check it, um, say, at the fire department or some grocery stores and um, drug stores have blood pressure machines, and they check it there, and it's perfectly fine. So that's called white coat syndrome. Yes, go figure. Well, we are scary. <laughs> we are pretty scary so, sometimes. And one more thing about comparing the blood pressures. Again, make sure that your comparison is with the person in the same position. You don't want to compare um, three blood pressures, two standing and one laying on their left side. You're going to have an unusual drop because they're on their left side. That doesn't necessarily mean that the blood pressure is always better it's just that you corrected it by putting them in a position where their blood pressure generally is lower anyway so make sure your three readings are all in the same position and every time they come back to have their blood pressure rechecked that you write down what position they were in when you checked it 
Right, and you, and of course you should write down the time of day too, because blood pressures can vary, vary exactly at different times of the day. They're usually lower in the beginning, early part of the day. Because yes, you are... haven't heard all the bad things that <laughs> <laughs> happened for the day. Okay, that's right. You haven't turned on your email or gotten any phone uh-huh. calls from people yet. All right, make sure you do these pressures at rest also, because uh, blood pressures rise in people doing exercise or other physical exertions. Oh yeah. So that's something important to know. Exactly. Now readings above 160 over 100 are associated with a significantly higher frequency of complications. So these are people that could develop a stroke it could have a heart attack heart failure kidney failure chronic kidney failure um in these people you may see symptoms like headaches they may have blurred vision they may be nauseous have vomiting these are people that you're going to be concerned about many of these people have had will be in your group they have had chronic high blood pressure issues in the past make sure if you know someone who has that and you're going to be taking care of them if the you know what hits a fan that they are accumulating medications so that they have some extra right. they ask their doctor for an extra prescription or going a little early early every month to you know fill out their prescriptions so that they can accumulate a little bit extra so now good idea exactly now very low blood pressure is going to be seen in people that have hemorrhage to have a had that are bleeding or the people that are in shock and we're going to talk about that in more detail on another show right and that's basically having low volume and that could be from either losing the volume of your blood or dehydration exactly now mental status is something else that you're going to want to know about and uh you want to make sure your patient is indeed alert and they can respond to questions and commands there are some people after an injury or a head injury for example they might seem disoriented or if they have a high fever uh, ask them simple questions like what's your name where are you what year it is and uh, if they know all three of those things we could say that they are oriented times three Three. that's right so yeah you should note on your record whether the patient appears lethargic or whether they're agitated or behaving strangely in any way. Mm-hmm. Some people may be unconscious or may appear unconscious, but they might respond to a spoken command. For example, hey, open your eyes, you know, and they might respond to that. Sometimes they don't. If they don't, you apply a little pressure to the breastbone and that will usually have them, if they can respond, they usually will respond to that. And that's called response to painful stimuli now exactly how you do that is you make a fist you don't punch them in the chest okay you're going to gently place your knuckles on their sternum okay the breastbone and then you're going to move those up and down with a little bit of pressure okay you're not trying to collapse their chest here you're just trying to give them a little bit of pain you don't poke them with a knife or or stick them with some horrible object that's going to make them bleed but that movement if you if you take those knuckles and you run them up and down the breastbone, it is painful. Don't have your partner do it right now because you'll scream. But <laughs> trust me, it's painful. It's true. <laughs> As Dr. Bones was reaching for me to demonstrate while he was talking. Absolutely. <laughs> I know, I know. Now, if they, we if talk, they don't. We talk yeah. a lot with our yeah, hands. If you guys saw us, we animate everything that we're discussing. When we're telling you to look at your palm and check your rest, we're actually doing what Usually we're looking saying. at our palm. We yeah. are looking at our palm. We're putting our two fingers on. If we say put your two fingers in your neck, we're, we're putting our two, two fingers, fingers on the neck. <laughs> so 
it would actually be a good video. But anyway. So anyhow, if if they don't <laughs> respond to that um, breastbone sort of painful, painful stimuli, right. their term, unres- they're unresponsive to pain and something very serious is going on. If they're unconscious for prolonged periods of time, of course, that's called a coma. Everybody's heard of that. And uh, you know that something very serious is, is Happens, happening here. right. Now, uh, body temperature is another vital sign. And what you want to do is you want to take the person's temperature to verify that they don't have a fever, for example. And again, that they're not at the ex- same location. If you're going to monitor someone's fever or their temperature for a few days, just note it. Mark it down so that you know that it's either under the arm or in the mouth. We don't really do rectal <laughs> anymore. They have those new ear thermometers. They do. They that do. That are electronic. If you have power, you have the ability to recharge batteries, well, then that might be something that might be useful for you. Now, a significant fever is defined as a temperature above 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit. And the reason why we use 100.4 Oral. Oral. orally, right, by the way, uh, the reason why we use 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit is because that's exactly 38.0 degrees Celsius, and that is what we consider to be a significant fever. Now, people that have a very low temperature, less than 95 degrees, that's 35 degrees Celsius, may indicate things like hypothermia, cold-related illness. Now, if you are taking a temperature under the arm, usually the temperature is going to be one degree lower if right. you're 98.6 in your mouth orally, you're probably 97 point something um point under the armpit generally. and it, it, you're probably a little if you had a rectal thermometer you and you use that it would be a little higher right if you use the rectal thermometer now uh if you have something like heat stroke uh, which we call also called hyperthermia. That's the temperature that rises above 105 degrees. That's 40.5 degrees Celsius. You've got some big issues. And, of course, we've talked about both hypothermia. We'll probably be talking about that soon again as we're entering the cold part of winter. Winter, uh, And we've talked about hyperthermia probably two or three times over the summer. Yes. So we so you'll find all of that on the website, too, by the way. You know, we have over 700 and something Articles, uh, bot- videos, podcasts, oh my gosh, <laughs> on our website at www.doomandbloom.net. So if, if you haven't been there, go ahead and check it out. You'll probably find information on whatever you're interested in checking out. So anyhow, once you've taken the vital signs, determined there's no obvious injury, you're going to perform your general examination from head to toe in an organized manner. And we're going to be talking about that in future episodes of the survival medicine hour we're going to take a short break and we will be right back you're listening to the survival medicine hour with dr bones and nurse amy hi i'm joe alden md of www.doomandbloom.net where you'll find over 600 posts videos and podcasts on medical preparedness along with my wife nurse practitioner amy alden we're the authors of the amazon bestseller the survival medicine handbook with over 200 five-star reviews A disaster can strike at any time, and the ambulance may not always be heading in your direction. We've got an entire line of medical kits, supplies, and educational resources that can help you deal with injuries and illness in everything from a wilderness hike to the aftermath of a major disaster. Check them out at our shop at store.doomandbloom.net. In a disaster, you'll be glad you did. And we're back. We're listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. 
You know, we're part of the Survival Podcast Expert Council. The Survival Podcast is headed up by our good friend Jack Spierko, and Jack has probably more podcasts, I think 2,000 podcasts in total than anyone I know of in the field of survival, and we're very honored to be part of his expert council. Uh, we offer to answer questions for people that are survival podcast listeners, and we recently got a pretty interesting question by uh, Dean, who is a nurse, and he asks if there are, like fish antibiotics, uh, an- uh, antibiotics that you can get without a prescription for stockpiling purposes in times of trouble, are there antifungal medicines that are ordinarily prescription but are in some kind of veterinary form that you can get over-the-counter for the same purpose, for stockpiling in times of trouble? And so I answered this as part of the expert council, and this is my reply to Dean. Hi, Joe Alton here, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 700 posts on medical preparedness for any disaster. This week's question for the Survival Podcast Expert Council is from Dean, a nurse who asks, is there an antifungal medication that someone can buy in the same way that there are antibiotics that a person can buy, like fish mocks, to stockpile for hard times without having a prescription? Dean, I don't talk about fungal meds a lot because the most common fungal infections relate to the skin, and they can be treated with ointments and powders such as clotrimazole, brand name Lotrimin, or myconazole, brand name Monistat, and others. As many of these are over-the-counter, they can and should be stockpiled in quantity. Even gold bond powder, a combination of menthol and zinc oxide, would be soothing for certain fungal infections such as jock itch. There are, however, fish medications that are targeted for fungal infections, but only one appears to have an active ingredient in human dosage, and that is ketoconazole. Human brand name is Nizorol, and it's sold under the aquatic brand name Fish Fungus. Ketoconazole 200 mg is used to treat problematic internal infections, such as valley fever, a fungal infection also known as coccidiomycosis, and a number of other systemic fungal uh, issues. The problem here is that treatment for some of these is of long duration, sometimes six months of daily treatment due to the persistence of the organism. This makes it impractical for inclusion in your survival medicine cabinet. Also, the Food and Drug Administration warns that taking ketoconazole orally can cause severe liver and adrenal gland problems, and it's even contraindicated in pregnant women. It states that ketoconazole oral tablets should not be a first-line treatment, for any fungal infection, and instead recommends the drug fluconazole, a prescription-only tablet called Diflucan in its brand form, and it appears to be pretty well tolerated. Now, having said this, most doctors will be willing to give you an extra prescription for fluconazole or other fungal meds if there is a history of fungal infections resistant to the over-the-counter measures. Of course, a plan of action to prevent fungal infections is very important. Keep your feet, hair, and skin as dry as possible. Switch shoes and socks out to allow them to dry. Use antifungal or talcum powder on problem areas. Keep footwear on if you wash in public showers like at a gym. And don't share personal items like brushes, towels, and other stuff. Check your pets for the telltale ringworm rash. They can pass it on. 
This is Joe Alton, MD, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Okay, well, you know, I want to talk about an item that is going to be very useful as sort of a, an antibiotic extender. In other Ooh. words, instead of using your antibiotics, which you probably have a precious supply of, and you only want to use it when absolutely necessary, there are things that you can use, especially on wounds that might be infected or, uh, or you're concerned about their becoming infected, uh-huh. that are relatively easy to deal with. Uh, you can make this material or the, this cleansing solution is okay. what I'm going to call it from ordinary household products, and it is something Fantastic. that is something that will decrease the chances of an infection taking out a member of your family in times of trouble. Okay, so let's say uh, if you were had run out of triple antibiotic ointment, or you didn't have any raw and processed honey. And you really needed something to help prevent infection. Right. You would use something called Dakin solution. Now, Dakin solution is something used to prevent and treat uh-huh. skin and tissue infections that result from infected from cuts and scrapes and pressure sores, even you know even chronic ones. In other words, bed sores. Right. In uh, which are very difficult right. to deal with. And exactly. I, I just want to reiterate what you just said. It wasn't just prevent. You also said can treat. treat. You can treat it. Very right. important. Exactly. Very important. It can be used before or after surgical procedures uh, to prevent wound infections as a result of surgical procedures. Uh-huh. And it's essentially a type of hypochlorite solution, a type of bleach solution. It's made from bleach that's been diluted and treated to decrease irritation. Uh, it's the so active another, ingredient. So another useful um, recipe for... Um, your pull shock, right? For Something right, which will use. make a lot of bleach for you. Exactly, and you use the, you can use the bleach that you make from the pull shock to help make uh, Dakin solution. Okay. Now, I want I have an interesting story about Doctor Dakin. Okay, let's okay. hear this. Now, Henry Drysdale Dakin mm-hmm. was a, a British man who was a chemist, and he went to New York. Uh, to Columbia University, and he worked in the laboratory of a do- of an American doctor called Doctor Hertner, and he was uh, he met while he was in New York a Doctor Carell, a French doctor, Alexis Carell, who was basically involved in uh, trying to work with vascular repair, and so he's one of the First people to actually try to reattach, put, put yeah, the vessels, vessels, blood back vessels together. back together, and and sew them together. He won the Nobel Prize for it. Wow! So, however, there's an interesting story about this. And wow. Dakin's solution in in the past used to be called Dakin's Corel solution, but it's not anymore. And this is what happened in World War One. These two guys got together and they figured out that they can prevent by using bleach the, in, a, in a way that Dr. Dakin figured out can help by irrigating wounds with this, with this bleach solution. Uh-huh. He combined bleach and boric acid. Basically what happens is that it decreased the chance for infection. Remember, there were no antibiotics at, in right, World War then. I. Yes. And, and so... These guys collaborated, and 
uh, since Carell was a, a French director of military hospitals, he was able to use this get 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 the had the influence in order to use this stuff and actually it saved some field. people's yeah right. saved some people's During. lives. Okay. The problem is, is that Carell wrote a book Uh-oh. in which he outlined the exact use the exact words of the in the chemistry papers that Dake, Dr. Dakin published without ever mentioning Dr. Dakin. Oh no. He tried to steal it. And so plagiarize. That's right. And as time went on, Dr. Carell, I don't know if he became unhinged or what happened with him, but he became a big follower of eugenics. And so what that means is that he was interested in building a master race. Well, interestingly enough, there was someone Uh-oh. else that was interested in building a master race. Yes, we after all know, World War One, we all know who he is, <laughs> and that was Adolf Hitler. And he became a, fo- a follower or a supporter of the Nazi regime. He wow. thought that he had they had very laudable Corral goals, yes. you know, in making you know uh, okay. a master race. Uh, and uh, he became part of the when the uh, Germans invaded France and took over parts of France, he was part of the regime that governed Supported. France during that time. It was called the wow. Vichy regime. Vichy regime. Vichy, yes, I've and, heard that. Right. And he was arrested. And since you're my history teacher, right. I'm sure that you are the one who actually <laughs> taught me that. <laughs> very, <laughs> very possibly. <laughs> Professor Alton. Very possibly. So, the, so what happened was is that when the Allies took over Paris again in August of 1944, well, they arrested Correll. Dr. Correll, and uh, he died actually within three months. Wow. And so instead of this being called Dakin's Correll solution, it's only called really Dakin's solution, although some people may know that it's Dakin's Correll, but because basically... Number one, the idea might have been stolen by the, from Doctor Dakin, right. and number two, this guy was a Nazi a sympathizer, person. a bad person, so a or a misguided person. person at the very least. All right. So anyhow, that's the story. So this is how to make Dakin solution. Yeah, basically, what you need is supplies. You need some bleach, Clorox, or similar standard household bleach, not. High, high strength or ultra or anything like that. No scent, no scentedness. Right. Unscented bleach, and uh, instead of boric acid, you're going to use some sodium bicarbonate, baking okay. soda. Baking soda. So basically, bleach and baking soda. You need some clean tap water. You want a clean pan with a lid, a measuring cup and spoons, and a jar with a lid. Now, what you need to do: wash your hands well. To start off with, which is you should do with just about everything. Great idea. Right. Get your supplies and measure out about 32 ounces. It's about four cups of tap water and pour it onto the pan. Boil that water for 15 minutes with the lid on and then remove it from the heat. Allow it to cool. Using a measuring spoon, add a half a teaspoon of baking soda to the boiled water. And then you can use certain amounts of Clorox based on whether you want full strength baking solution or lesser strength. Half strength, fourth strength. Or quarter strength or eighth strength. Uh-huh. And the full strength taken solution is the highest concentration Possible. solution that will not 
cause damage to the skin. Gotcha. So that's something that's very important to know. Yes. Because it you don't necessarily have to use if it's if it's you're just preventing, you don't have to use full strength. If you had a, a wound that had pus in it and stuff like that, I would. Yes. But if if it doesn't, you could use half strength, quarter strength, even as eighth strength as a preventive. Sure. Now for full strength Dakin solution, you would use three ounces of the bleach or that will be ninety five milliliters if you have something that measures in milliliters. Uh-huh. For half strength, you use three tablespoons, or and um, one three three and a half tablespoons, or forty eight milliliters uh-huh. of Dakin of uh, bleach. For quarter strength, is one teaspoon, one tablespoon, and two teaspoons, uh, or twenty four milliliters. Okay. And for eight strength, two and a half teaspoons, or twelve to fourteen milliliters of bleach. Okay, to so that, and that all goes into thirty-two ounces. All goes. All right. So and, let me just rehash this. All right. So full strength is three ounces of bleach to the thirty-two ounces. The half strength is three tablespoons plus a half teaspoon. The quarter strength is one tablespoon plus two teaspoons. Now this is an addition. One tablespoon plus two teaspoons is one quarter strength. And one-eighth strength is two and a half teaspoons or 12 to 14 milliliters. So it's a total of two and a half teaspoons, all, again, for the 32 ounces. Right. Or I just wanted to mention that half strength, I think I said three and a half tablespoons. I think you said it right, three tablespoons plus half a teaspoon. Plus half teaspoon. Right, that's right. 48 milliliters. Right. Okay, so you're going to pour, apply it, spray it, however you want, onto the injured area. When you use it on the wounds, you, you... you can use it as a cleanser. You irrigate it with your irrigation syringe. Uh, you can wet the wound dressing with it and, and apply a wet-to-dry dressing there. Uh, this is something that's uh, very, very useful. Now, I want you to use it once daily for minor wounds. I want you to use it twice daily for heavily draining or definitely contaminated wounds that have pus in it. This is something that's important. The one other thing that's very important is protect the surrounding healthy skin with a moisture barrier like petroleum jelly. Gotcha. So all along the skin, I want petroleum jelly or some kind of uh, skin to protect the gel- irritant. Right. Exactly. We don't so, want to break down healthy tissue. That's right. You know, we are out of time. I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of the Survival the Medicine, Medicine Hour, Hour with the lovely nurse Amy Hour. and some old guy. <laughs> See you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.